0: Graphs the Bible is a podcast of Spring Baptist Church that walks through selected books of the Bible verse by verse, as well as spends time exploring biblical ideas and topics to help you understand and apply God's Word in your daily life. Pastor Dale Stein of our Klein campus will be leading each week's study. This is our 95th episode. Thank you for joining us today. Today we are continuing our study in the book of Mark. Pastor Dale, it is good to have you with us today. Great, thank you. Good to be back. So today is a heavy day. Yes. So do you want to give everybody just a little glimpse into it so they can kind of prepare themselves, uh, both spiritually, mentally, for what's going to go down, and then maybe give us a little insight into what we should be looking at for today.
1: Yeah, so Jesus is going to be uh, standing before Pilate, uh, condemned to die, and Roman soldiers are going to mock him, and um, they are going to beat him and spit on him. And so it is a very dark time, and, and ultimately today as we end, we're going to experience the crucifixion of Jesus. And one of the things I want uh, our, our listeners to keep in mind is that the religious leaders, they view Jesus as a failure because he's unable to save himself from Roman crucifixion. But there is so much irony in this whole story because that by staying on the cross, Jesus is actually fulfilling the role of the Messiah, and he's bringing salvation to Israel by offering his life as a ransom for sins.
0: As always, Jesus does it in a way that people would never expect. Mm -hmm. Well, let's jump right into today's study. Continue our study in the book of Mark, Uh, and today we're going to look at
2: chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. Now, Jesus had been declared guilty of blasphemy by the religious leaders of his own nation, He was disowned by his leading disciple, Peter. He was unjustly condemned by the Roman governor because of political expediency. And Jesus will now suffer the most humiliating and excruciating death imaginable, and that is crucifixion. And so Jesus is going to be mocked as the king of the Jews before he is taken to Golgotha to be crucified. And so Mark's description of the crucifixion emphasizes both the extreme humiliation of the Son of God and the irony of the situation where Jesus is the King of the Jews, and in fact, Pilate is going to acknowledge that during the crucifixion. So let's begin by looking at verses 16 through 20, what I'm calling the contempt. We'll look at verse 16 to start out. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and called out the entire regiment. Now, the Roman soldiers, they have just finished flogging Jesus back in verse 15, and they now gather in the courtyard of Pilate's headquarters to mock and abuse him. The word praetorium is actually a, a Latin word that originally referred to the uh, governor's or the commander's uh, tent in a military encampment, but here it refers to the governor's official residence. Now, perhaps your translation says something like they called together the whole co- the whole cohort, right? And so, a cohort was a tenth of a legion and is approximately six hundred soldiers. Now elsewhere, the term can also be used to refer to maybe 200 soldiers. And so Mark is likely using the term loosely here, saying that whatever soldiers were present, they gathered them all together for what is about to come. So moving on to verse 17. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with their reed stick, spin on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. So this charge, king of the Jews, it it, it elicits derision from the soldiers because to them Jesus looks nothing like a king. So they took every opportunity to mock him. And so this purple cloth or cloak that they put on Jesus was likely a faded military garment that looked purple enough to mimic royalty. The crown the soldiers weaved together from thorns mimicked the laurel wreath used to celebrate conquering heroes, victorious athletes, and honored citizens. Now, Matthew adds that they put a reed or a staff in his right hand, no doubt a parody of a royal scepter. The mocking cry, Hail, King of the Jews, it parodies the Latin a greeting to the emperor, Hail, Caesar, Emperor. So do you see everything that they are doing here is meant to bring about shame and humiliation. And so the whole scene here resembles this Roman triumph where Caesar will be hailed as emperor while wearing a purple robe with a laurel wreath and holding a scepter they are completely making fun of him over and over again. And so in addition to the mocking, they in, Jesus endorsed physical abuse at the hands of the soldiers as they repeatedly beat him uh, on the head with a reed or a staff, probably the one that Matthew mentions that they gave Jesus to hold, and they continued to spit on him. And so if we remember Jesus' third passion prediction, and the allusions to Isaiah's suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 50 verses 6 through 7 that says that he will be insulted and spat upon. And so this parody continues as they fall to their knees and pay homage to him. They are bowing before their king. Moving on to verse 20. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off their purple robe and put his clothes on him again. They led him away to be crucified. So it's surprising that the soldiers would put Jesus' clothes back on him because Roman sources suggest that victims were led to the crucifixion often naked, but Jesus' clothes would be, um, would be removed again before the crucifixion in verse 24. And so some people believe that to accommodate some sense of Jewish sensibility that they put some type of clothing, whether it be very minimal over Jesus to, to, cover, uh, to cover him. So now let's look at the cross bearer in verse 21. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the court, side, court countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So crucifixion victims were commonly required to carry their own cross to the site of execution and this was normally the wooden cross piece which would then be taken and affixed to the upright stake that the uh, that remained in the ground at the, at the execution site and so the greek term for cross originally referred to the stake that was sunk into the ground for capital punishment but mark's cross probably referred to that cross beam that jesus had to carry so according to john 19:17 jesus carried his own cross And all three uh, of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say that this man named Simon was compelled to carry it. And it could very well be that Jesus began to carry it, but collapsed under the weight, could not carry it any longer. And then this other man was forced or conscripted into carrying that. And so conscription was a practice normally used by the Romans where they would enlist civilians to do some type of work for them. And so Cyrene in North Africa had a large Jewish population, so Simon is probably a Jew. And we don't know if he was formerly a resident of Jerusalem, come back home for the Passover. We don't know also if he was, just came in from this other country or was out in literally the countryside there and came back into the city. And so let's look next at the crucifixion in verses 22 through 32. Let's look at verse 22 first. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And so this word Golgotha is a slightly modified version of an Aramaic word meaning skull. And so Mark paraphrases it, calling it the place of the skull. The word cavalry that we use sometimes actually comes from the Latin Vulgate, where the Greek was translated into the place of the skull. Now, the reason for the name of the place is actually unknown. It may have been because the place was associated with capital punishment and death, and so the word skull actually functioned as another word for death. Now, some people favor a particular location called Gordon's Calvary as a site of crucifixion, and they suggest the place was on a hill above a rock formation resembling a skull, Now, executions, they were performed outside of the city walls, and this was the case with Jesus as well. And the Romans tended to crucify people near major roads since the act was intended to be a public spectacle and a warning to others. There was a, a man named Marcus Fabius Quintilian. He was a Roman orator and writer and teacher of rhetoric who lived in the first century AD, and he wrote this about crucifixion. Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear, for penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. In other words, they used crucifixion and made sure everyone saw it. It's a great deterrent when people see that execution being carried out right in front of them. And so this location of Golgotha is uncertain neither Mark nor any other gospel writer locates its exact description or the place. Now, the evidence favors the site of what's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is currently inside the walls of modern-day Jerusalem, but archaeological evidence indicates that it's actually outside of the walls at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, by contrast, this skull-like outcrop called Gordon's Calvary and the adjacent garden tomb, although they're popular devotional sites, there's little corroborating evidence that that this was actually the death and burial site for Jesus. Uh, It really wasn't until the 19th century or so that this was identified as a possible place. And nowhere in any of our Gospels does it say that Golgotha was a hill But it may have gotten that name from being a a low-lying hill in the shape of a skull. But here's the thing. Mark was more concerned with the significance of Jesus' death rather than making sure his disciples knew exactly where the place was. So moving on to verse 23. They offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And so wine was sometimes given as an act of mercy to condemn killers to dull their pain. Psalm 31, verse 6 reads this, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitterly distressed. Now, there's little evidence, though, that myrrh actually has a narcotic effect, but it was principally used to flavor wines. And so, since the wine here appears to be offered by the soldiers, not Jesus' supporters, this could be part of the mockery, providing the king with the finest of wines. But Jesus refused to play along with their games and he faces death with dignity and courage. Moving on to verse 24. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. Now, all four gospel accounts, when they tell about the crucifixion, they do it in incredible brevity and restraint. And so Mark only uses three words in the original Greek and they crucified him. That's all he says. And although crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, it was practiced by the Persians and the Greeks and others before them, it became their favorite means of execution. It served not only as a means of capital punishment, but also as a weapon of terror, a warning to the general population of catastrophic consequences for challenging Roman authority. And so the Romans used it to bring mutinies under control and to break the will of people that they conquered and to wear down rebellious cities that were under siege. Dangerous criminals and rebellious slaves were often crucified. And the practice was viewed with horror by writers of the day, and it was too cruel of a punishment to be inflicted upon Roman citizens. In fact, Cicero calls it the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Now, the Romans, they practiced various forms of crucifixion. Sometimes victims were impaled on a stake. More often, a crossbeam was used either on top uh, of an upright post like a T or in the traditional shape of a cross that we, that we think of. And various methods were employed to bring about maximum torture and humiliation. Seneca wrote this, Some hang their victims with their head toward the ground, so they crucify them upside down. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms on a fork-shaped gibbet. So you see just how cruel and terrifying that this was, that the Romans did to people. And death by crucifixion resulted in bleeding exposure, exhaustion, and asphyxiation. Sometimes a small seat was attached to the cross, And sometimes there were footrests there as well to allow the victims to push themselves up to breathe, thus lengthening the time of torture. And victims could linger for days on the cross, gradually becoming prey for birds and wild dogs. Mark relates that the soldiers divided his garments. They were casting lots to see who would get what, and it was not uncommon for the executioners to divide the meager possessions of their victims. And it was a custom that related to the practice of dividing plunder after a battle. Now, the Romans normally crucified their victims naked, as I mentioned earlier. And this may have been the case with Jesus. But since he's being described as being reclothed for the trip to Golgotha, probably some concession was made and perhaps they, they put a loincloth on him. So let's move on to verse 25. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. Now, perhaps your translation says that Jesus was crucified in the third hour, which is 9 a.m. Now, though elsewhere Mark rarely gives precise times, uh, he carefully charts the time of the crucifixion. And so Jesus was crucified in the third hour. We're going to find out later on that darkness comes over the land in the sixth hour. That's at noon. Jesus cries out and dies in the ninth hour or 3 p.m. Joseph of Arimathea then approaches Pilate about the body when evening approached. Could be 6 p.m. We just don't know. So that's the timeline of things. Moving on to verse 26. A sign announced a charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. All four gospel writers, they describe a written notice or inscription identifying the charge against Jesus. Mark doesn't say where this was located, but Matthew says it was above his head, and Luke says it was above him, and John says it was fastened to the cross. And it was common for accused criminals to wear placards identifying their crimes. And so Jesus' inscription reads slightly different in all four gospel accounts. Matthew says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. Luke writes, this is the king of the Jews. And finally, John records Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So whatever the wording was, it was widely accepted as historical by scholars that there was some type of placard identifying Jesus. And so it's interesting here because they write king of the Jews, not king of Israel. And so this was a Roman designation for Jesus. And so this uh, this inscription provides good evidence that Jesus was crucified as a royal pretender. It was indirect evidence of his, at, his, at his trial that he claimed to be the Messiah. And so let's move, move on to verse 27. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, whether these two outlaws who were crucified with Jesus were robbers or insurrectionists, it's not clear, but the latter, insurrectionist seems most likely. Because the Romans often referred to political rebels as thieves or common criminals, while Jewish masses viewed them as freedom fighters. And these two others were likely companions of Barabbas, who was arrested for the same act of rebellion and murder. Now, if you are careful, you look in in your Bible translation, more than likely you go from verse 27 to 29, and there is no verse 28. Some translations have it, right? And so it actually is a citation of Isaiah 53 verse 12, and so it appears to be a later addition to the book of Mark. The earliest manuscripts don't contain verse 28. And so uh, it's likely a scribal edition that was based on Luke chapter 23, verse 37, which says, For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Again, we don't see this in the earliest Greek manuscripts of this particular passage. Moving on to verse 29. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him you said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so three groups are described as mocking Jesus. They were the passers-by in verses 29 through 30, the religious leaders in verses 31 and 32, and even those who were crucified with Jesus in verse 32. And so the first group shows that the crucifixion is being taking place on a public thoroughfare, magnifying the shame and the humiliation. And so the presence of these people also shows that the entire community pretty much by this time had turned against Jesus, reiterating the cries back in chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, of crucifying him. And so remember back in chapter 11, verse 19, they claimed him who, who has come in the name of the Lord. And they delighted in his debates with the religious leaders. But these same people have now rejected him. Now, the word blaspheme, maybe your translation uses the word blaspheme. It can mean to verbally abuse without implications of sacrilege. And that fits the context here. They were verbally abusing him. Now, ironically, the one accused of blasphemy is now being blasphemed. They were shaking their heads as a sign of derision and contempt. And so it's this, there's another allusion to Psalm 22, verse 7, where it says, The enemies of the righteous suffer. Uh, they, the, the enemies of the righteous suffer hurl insults, shaking their heads. So again, we're seeing Old Testament prophecy coming true about Jesus. And so the charge of threatening to destroy the temple brought against Jesus at his trial is now used to mock Jesus' weaknesses. See, anyone who could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days could surely save himself from the fate that he's in right now. Again, the irony here is really thick because by staying on the cross, Jesus is bringing an end to this sacrificial system and he is destroying the purpose and function of the temple. Yet, they don't get it. And so, let's move on to verse 31. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. And so again, we see this second group of people mocking him. They were the ruling priests and the law experts who led the way in Jesus' trial and arrest. And so, unlike the crowds who spoke directly to Jesus, Mark indicates that they were speaking to one another. And so he gives a sense that they were basically congratulating themselves for what they have done in destroying Jesus. And so it's interesting here because the statement that he saved others, it must refer to Jesus' healing ministry. They must have known that he was able to save people from certain illnesses. But really, the context here is broader because they're mocking Jesus as this Messiah, the one who came to bring about salvation to Israel. And so as Messiah, Jesus' role was to bring about ultimate salvation, which includes not just physical healings, but national restoration and renewal. And so the irony of Mark's drama by Jesus staying on the cross is that Jesus is actually fulfilling the role of the Messiah, bringing salvation to Israel and offering his life as a ransom for many for the payment of sins. And so by claiming that they would believe if they see Jesus come down from the cross, see the religious leaders, they're asking for another sign. But Jesus responded to the request back in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, telling them that he would not give them a sign because, again, their hearts were hardened and that they were blind to see God's purpose. And again, we see the irony here is that by enacting their plans against Jesus, they become unwitting pawns in the salvation that they are now demanding from Jesus. And so those wicked, uh, the wicked tenant farmers who rejected the son that we saw back in chapter 12 it is actually coming true right now, that parable that Jesus told. And now we see, again, this this third group to mock Jesus is these two outlaws who were crucified with him. Now, only Luke is the only one to talk about how one of them was repentant. And so we see here this ultimate... Um, in shaming and, and, and humiliation because even those who are suffering the same fate as Jesus have nothing but derision for him and his apparently deluded messianic claims. So what are we to see from, from these verses here? Well, one is that we see the rejection of Jesus by everyone and the depravity of humanity. And so Mark's crucifixion scene is seen as one of despair and humiliation. Now, although the crucifixion is described itself in a simple and unadorned manner, they crucified him, Mark dwells on the taunting and the mocking of the Jews. And so we're not surprised when the Roman soldiers mock and abuse Jesus, since they are the historical enemies of Israel. But when Jewish pastors by, when they do the same thing, it indicates that the people of Israel have rejected their Messiah. The one who announced the kingdom, the one who offered hope, who expelled demons, who fed multitudes, who healed the sick and raised the dead, has now himself come to nothing. And you know, we tend to despise, uh, we tend to, we tend to despise those the most who disappoint us the most. And the people who once eagerly flocked to Jesus in hope of him now despise him in his weakness. And so we have this derision by these religious leaders, and we're not surprised because we we see that they were entrenched against Jesus and his ministry from the very beginning. And so the the criminals, though, we're kind of surprised to see this because they're in the same situation that Jesus is in. But I think Mark is doing this to to show the total rejection by depraved humanity. And so with those who have the eyes of faith they see that while humanity has turned against God, God has not rejected them. Because Jesus' death is an act of reconciliation. It is God's sacrificial gift to the world. It is a payment for our sins. In our world today, we look and see these unspeakable acts of evil. We see corrupt leaders abusing people and taking bribes to pad their own wallets. We see respected coaches ministry leaders, and Boy Scout leaders who oversee children and they turn out to pedophiles who prey on the innocent and wreak havoc on young lives. And we wonder all the time, where is God? And the answer is this, is that he is there on the cross. He's experiencing and absorbing the hatred and evil of humanity. He's refusing to lash back and instead offering forgiveness to others. By refusing to save himself, Jesus is saving others, giving himself as a ransom for many. We also see in this episode here the fulfillment of Scripture. And so this theme of fulfillment has permeated Mark's passion narrative and is equally present in this crucifixion scene. So we've seen allusions to Psalm 22. The division of Jesus' garments recalls Psalm 22, verse 18. The insults of the passers-by brings to mind Psalm 27, verse 7. The taunts to save himself echo Psalm 22, verse 8. The reviling of those crucified him parallels Psalm 22, verse 6. And finally, Jesus will cite the first verse of the psalm in his cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Mark asserts that all this is happening because this is God's ordained plan for salvation. And Jesus predicts his own betrayal, his arrest, his abandonment, trial, mocking, crucifixion, and resurrection. And his emphatic declaration through all of this is that scripture must be fulfilled. And so none of these events catch God off guard. None of these here are outside of his control or his sovereign purpose. And the resurrection was was again predicted by Jesus and will prove the ultimate vindication of his messiahship and of God's sovereign plan. And so this must have been very encouraging for Mark's readers who were facing suffering and persecution and even death. And so these truths would provide encouragement for them in the days to come. And it's a good reminder for us, too, that no challenges that we face in this life are outside of God's control or His sovereign will. After suffering comes vindication for those who will trust in Him. And then we also see that this paradox of the cross. And so we see this paradox all throughout the New Testament because the Christian worldview turns the views of this world upside down. For example... The foolish message of the cross is the true wisdom of God. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. By dying with Christ to ourselves, we live through him. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 10. True freedom from sin and death comes by becoming a slave to God and of righteousness. Paul writes that in Romans 6 verses 15 through chapter 7 verse 6. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for Christ and the gospel will save it. Mark recorded that for us early in chapter 8, verse 35. There is strength through weakness for those who learn to depend on God, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Those who want to become first must become last. And those who want to lead must serve. Mark reminds us of that back in chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And so we're seeing here these upside-down values of the kingdom of God are subversively bringing transformation and renewal into this fallen world. And that wraps us up today for this passage. Next time, we will pick up and finish verse or chapter 15 looking at what happens immediately after Jesus' crucifixion. So let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging, Lord, that in the end, it was all of our sins that put your Son on the cross. But we know also that, that you also sent him there because this was your plan all along to provide salvation to us. And we also acknowledge, Lord, that it was your son who willingly went. And so, Lord, we praise you for this indescribable gift. Let us not uh, focus our attention on blaming other people, but, Lord, let us stand in awe that you cared enough for us to send your son. And, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for suffering such a humiliating death. Lord, not only did you suffer at the hands of men, you took indescribable wrath of the Father, wrath that, that we, all of us, so rightly deserved, and you took it upon yourself. You endured suffering that no one will ever know, indescribable suffering, because you loved us so much. Father, forgive us for those times when we uh, get so wrapped up in ourselves that we forget to honor you and praise you and sing glory to you and your son, Jesus. Lord, as imperfect as it is of a job as we do in this life, we look forward to the day when we are with you in heaven. And we can honor you and praise your son in a way that truly glorifies him and all that he did. And we know we will never tire of that in all of eternity for the indescribable gift that has been so freely given to us. Thank you, Father, for all of that. And Lord, you know that we live in the midst of a dark and perishing world, and we know the fate of those um, who don't choose to follow Jesus. Lord, let that terrify us, what awaits them. Let that wake us up to be about the business of sharing the good news of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, as we do, that your Spirit would give us words to speak, words that, that, that bring conviction of sin so that people would repent and place their faith in your son, Jesus, before it is too late. And Father, we ask these things in the mighty one who saved
0: us. Amen. Thank you for that. Now, as we talk about every time we come together and we finish a time of teaching, what's the key takeaway of this very heavy message today?
1: We see here the same theme that we've seen really in the last several times Um, That we've met and discussed this Which is God's sovereignty Because no challenges we face in life Are outside of God's control Or outside of his sovereign will Even in this crucifixion Even in the darkest times We still see the plan of God Moving ahead Just as he promised it would be
0: That is both reassuring Mm -hmm. I mean in the hugest sense Cosmically You know like earlier in the week There was a thing where A part of the sun broke off People mm-hmm. were freaking out, and I'm like, but God is still in control, you know? So so there, there's a piece there, but then there's also a little part of me that goes, wow, how do, how do I live a life that amplifies that? Mm-hmm. How does my faith play into that, and how do I surrender to that while not being inactive? Right. Mm-hmm. So, um. How do we apply that? I mean, I mean that's a heavy statement. Say it again for us, and then go right into the application.
1: Yeah, we have to remember that no challenges we face in life are outside of God's control or of his sovereign will. And, and this is so huge for us to understand is that we have some preachers, fortunately not, not our pastor, but some out there, who say that, you know, once you become a Christian, you know, there will be no problems in life. Life is good. You can live this wonderful life if you just name it and claim it and all these things. And and what I read over and over again in the Bible is that God's people are not immune from suffering. And we even see his own son paying the ultimate price for what we have done. And so um, let me just encourage those of you who are going through difficult times right now and you may be wondering, God, where are you? Where are you in all this? And and here is the answer. And here's what I think is so beautiful about this passage is that the answer is that he is there on the cross. He is experiencing and absorbing the hatred of evil and humanity. And he's refusing to lash back. And instead, he's offering God's forgiveness to everyone who would turn to him. And so... Um, God never promised a life of, of no problems, but he does offer this, that he is with us in those problems. And so um, I know sometimes that, that life is difficult and things seem very dark, but God does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He does not deliver us from those, but he delivers us through those challenges in life.
0: And that is so comforting. Mm-hmm. Because if if God was, if his plan was to always pull us out of discomfort before it happens. I think two things would happen. First, we would never grow. Mm-hmm. You know, we would never get any stronger. But the second thing is, I'm not sure we would appreciate what he's done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like if you always shield your children from life and you always protect them, give them everything they want. Then one day I, I, I think when they grow up, they don't realize that all of that cost us something. Mm-hmm. And and I think, so So part of us living life is, that helps us understand that God is there and he is interceding on our behalf. Yes. But it's for our good, but he wants us to be more like him and stronger. Absolutely. And, and I've, I cannot tell you the number
1: of Christians that I've spoken with over the years who have encountered horrible things in their life. And I hear it and it's almost unbelievable what they have gone through. But then I find a common response at the end, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Did I like it? No, it was miserable. But I am so much of a different person on the other side. My faith in God is at an extremely high level. It never would have been this high had it not been for this. Or through this situation, God has now given me an opportunity to minister other, to, to others who are in this same situation and I never would have had the opportunity had this not happened to me. So people uh, I've talked to over the years see that through whatever the ordeal was, that God still had a purpose for all that, even though at the time they may not have been able to see it or
0: understand it. I was gone this week and at a conference with a bunch of music pastors. There was a guy there, very unassuming, he had great hair, but he was very unassuming, probably, I'm guessing late 50s, early 60s. I'm awful with th- Little guy, really unassuming, very nice. And then we're getting through, I'm doing stuff. I knew he'd written some music. And we're doing a worship night where we're all singing. And it it was this great time. But they call him up there and say, his name's Mark Mathis. And they say, Mark, come on up. And why don't you tell us the story behind this song? And then sing it for us. And the song was called, Sometimes It Takes a Mountain. Mm -hmm. And the idea is sometimes God has to put a mountain in front of us before we realize what he wants to do in our life, before we realize how good he can be. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes a mountain, Mm -hmm. you know? And I thought, wow. Now, he sang sang the pants off that song. I mean, it was great. But just the words. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we got to come up to a mountain. God's got to help us climb through it and over it before we realize just what he wants to teach us. Yeah. Absolutely. So, any closing ideas just to kind of wrap up today? Because it, it, it is pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it might be the darkest moment in at least human history, because mm-hmm. we don't know anything outside of what God saw us. But I mean, it's, it's probably the darkest moment in human history. Anything you just need to say, kind of wrapping up before we move on? Yeah.
1: So, it is indeed dark. And if we put ourselves in the place of the disciples and those present, it seems that all hope is lost. And sometimes it can seem like that when we are in our situation, that we are all alone and all hope is lost. But we know that God had something different planned that the people at the time didn't know. And sometimes in our dark situations, we simply are not aware of what God has planned for us on the other side. And so it's times like that where we have to um, just pause and go back and, and dig deeper into God's word and remind ourselves of His character and who He is and uh, rest in, in that, rest in His goodness and His grace and His mercy, that no matter what the situation is, that, that he is going to work something out in that for his good and for his glory.
0: I, I I guess I'm stuck on songs. Mm-hmm. But I, but the song Same God pops up into my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, same God that parted the sea, the same God who took down the giant, the same God who saved us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That is the same God today, yesterday, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that, that what he did yesterday, he'll do today. And he always takes care of his people. Yes, he does. And and here's the thing, if I can get um, just really real
1: and very personal. Those who attend Spring Baptist, some of you know, and, and if you don't, you, you won't know this. Um, about 15 months ago, I was diagnosed with leukemia, and I was in shock when I first heard the news. And uh, I remember when I mentioned it to the congregation at the Klein Campus, one woman came up to me crying, and she said, I can't believe this is happening to you. You're the pastor. And I said to her, and I said, How does that, I said, I get it, but how does that excuse me from dealing with problems in this world? And I said, you know what? I don't know how God is going to use this, okay? And I am not immune from this. No no person is. But I have to have faith, and I've come to the point where God is going to use us in, in some way to honor Him. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what the days ahead look like. But I know this. I can trust Him. I know Him. I know His character. And the more I read and study, the more I get to know His character and the more I can know to trust Him. So whatever lies ahead, He's got this. And, I, and, I, and those, aren't, those aren't
0: just words. I actually do believe that. And I think we talked about this last week. When we're patient... And wait for God to work it out, like it's been you know the diagnosis crazy, but as you 've done what the doctors have asked and things to watch him work through you, that He keeps just giving you the, the next moment, and, and we don't we aren't given tomorrow, right. We have to just do today what we can do today mm-hmm. and uh, I appreciate that you do that every day, and uh, your your faithfulness on that now, there may be some folks out there that are struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a million things. So it could be health. could be family. could be finances. could just be the heaviness of this dark, broken, messed up world. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to them as we leave, just to, to encourage them? What would you say to them? If you are a believer,
1: you have God's promise to never leave you and to never forsake you. And let me encourage you to... Surround yourself with other people who are believers, people who are Christians. Um, Pour your heart out to them. Let them know how you're feeling so they can know specifically how to pray for you. And just let this be a time where you are the one ministered to and to be poured into so that you can sense God's presence in your life in a very real way. And if you are not a Christian, maybe this is God's way of tugging at your heart to say that he is there and he wants you to know him and he's using this perhaps as an opportunity to draw you to him so that you can know his son Jesus and to come to believe that he is indeed the savior of the world and that he died for your sins and your appropriate response is to repent, to tell God all the things that, that, that you've done wrong in your life to truly acknowledge how horrible they are. And to see those things the way God sees them And to turn away and ask his forgiveness And then to put your faith Your full trust Your commitment Into him As the one who can save your eternal soul So that is God's plan
0: Repent and believe Well, Thank you for that word I don't think I can add anything to that What I want to say is Thank you for joining us today We are praying for you We pray that God will draw you close to him whether you know him, if you don't know him, as Pastor Hale said, we hope that you come face-to-face with him this week. Join us next week as we continue our study in the book of Mark.